0: hello and welcome to the shifting culture podcast in which we have conversations about the culture we create and the impact we can make I'm your host Joshua Johnson go to shiftingculturepodcast.com to interact or donate in this episode we have a conversation with Sally Steele Sally is the co-executive director of City Hope San Francisco City Hope is a nonprofit focused on providing a space of belonging for For our most marginalized neighbors. We have a really good conversation about belonging as the beloved and engaging with others in a way that provides dignity and hope. It's a really good conversation. I know you're going to enjoy it, so let's get to it. Here's my conversation with Sally Steele. Sally, welcome to the Shifting Culture podcast. I'm so excited that you're here today. Uh, It's going to be a good conversation. I'm really looking forward to it.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited and looking forward to it as well.
0: Yeah. Well, where are you right now?
1: So I am in Oakland, California. Um, In my house, probably like a lot of people (laughs) working (laughs) from home. Um, Yeah. So I'm out here.
0: Really, like. I know that people can't see anything at the moment, but I really like that uh, painting behind you or that picture behind you on the wall. Um, What is that? Can you tell me a little bit about it?
1: Yeah. So um, it's, I I guess what we'd be called activist art. So there's, um, I can't remember which organization we got it from, but it's kind of been floating around that image and then similarly painted images. That one is of um, a young woman, um, African-American woman with dreadlocks. She's wearing a red shirt and it says we, the people at the bottom. Mm, Um, And it's, I think really an art that just kind of encapsulates like the moment of, how, who is America and right. who are we as people and how do we show up for one another?
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. I really, I love it. I think it's it's great. So what does it look like to, to be true, uh, authentic community uh, in, in a space that is full of uh, diversity, full of different faiths and different viewpoints? Um, and how do we enter into a space with diverse views and come and see each other for who we really are
1: that is a, a good and big, <laughs> big question it? and uh, <laughs> i think you'll, you'll get a different answer depending on who you ask um and, and kind of just where people are situated in our current environment right yeah. so Um, I think for um, those who've been historically disenfranchised, this has been a moment where there is both the hope of a national conversation around um, oppression, around systemic racism, around injustice, uh, kind of writ large, but then also in its historical context. I think for some other folks, the conversation is um, new. Um, and so they'll maybe enter in a little bit of different way. Uh, and then I think for for other folks, it's not just new, but frightening. And right. so I think that there's different people entering that conversation in different ways. Um, and I think ultimately when I think about community, I think of belonging and creating spaces of belonging. Mm. And so how do we widen the circle of who belongs and who yeah. gets to decide that? And you know we could obviously get into, um, uh structural things we could get into issues of power because those things can't be ignored and at the same time a lot of this plays out uh face to face one-on-one with individuals within your church within your faith community within your workspace at the grocery store, um, just kind of anywhere where you interact with a a person, especially now that the country's reopening, right? And there's going to be more of those interactions, not behind a screen, but face to face. And so how do we interact with one another and how do we build community? How do we make space for people who are different from ourselves Mm -hmm. um, wherever we are physically? And then also um, within our spheres of power, however small or large those are, how do we create space for people there as well for people not to just exist and be tolerated, but for people to really thrive and succeed and have equity. So yeah. it goes from like the micro um, yep. in terms of our interactions to a much broader conversation oh, around, yeah. you know, what are we doing for each other when it comes to policy?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, for me, the things that have, have really helped me is uh, I think a lot of the issues that we face uh, are, I mean, they're worldview issues of, you know, what is really deep, deep inside of us that comes out uh, and we see the world differently. So there's all clashing worldviews. Um, but I think even even a worldview, what it is for me is our identity. What who do we truly see ourselves as? So for me, I'm trying to figure out, Okay, I am now I'm a beloved son of God. If I see my identity as that um, I'm beloved and I could go, well. God created everyone as beloved sons and daughters um, that he he loves them. He sees them. He knows them. Um, It actually starts to change my thinking and my posture towards other people. Because we're looking at really the same family members from, you know, which look, you know, they may look different. They think different. They act different. But they're the same family members that really are, are loved by the father. Um, and that's helped me a lot. Uh, is there something that's helped you in that space uh, to interact with others?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I love what you said about being primarily beloved. Um, I heard a pastor once talk about how we're primarily, uh, we're here to be loved, not to be useful, mm. and how our culture has kind of turned our attention away from who are we as just beloved members of a community versus who are we as contributors and what happens when you stop yeah. contributing. Um, so for me, I think that that same same framework is actually really helpful. Um, And I think um, kind of knowing another thing that's helped me is kind of acknowledging my own lens Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: not seeing it as neutral. So I think sometimes we enter into spaces and even if we've gotten to the place where we acknowledge the image of God in all people, or at least in theory do, right? Right. Or we, (laughs) you know, see that other people are just people also there is still this thing of i'm the the norm the neutral they're different right. from me and their differences yep. are okay but i'm like the norm that I'm hoping people will assimilate into and right. I think an important step for all of us um you know because we, we're all like the protagonists in our own stories and Correct. so we kind of center ourselves it's a very human thing but for all of us to step back and realize that Everyone is the center of their own story in a lot of ways. And that their own um the identities, the history, the narratives um, that we bring to the table actually aren't neutral and that they're debatable and some of the things we believe um aren't shared by others. And some things uh can be held a little more loosely than how we hold them, um, to realize that we none of us were raised in a vacuum, right? Like we're all the product (laughs) of our broader society, our families, our friend circles, um, you know, everything that impacted us, the the media we'd listen to, the music, the like everything. We're just we're we're people who constantly get rewired. And so yeah. um, you know, it's just like when we talk about like the liturgies of church that shape you, well, there's liturgies everywhere. Like there's yeah. liturgy in sports, and there's liturgies in um, different communities, and those will shape you. So even having some idea of how you've been shaped and being open to the fact that other people have been equally shaped Mm -hmm. and that their, um, the way they've been shaped isn't less than yours, it's just different. And so maybe even reassessing our definition of what different is and whether it's different in relation to me or whether you yourself see that, um, or whether you see yourself as different also. Does that make sense? It's just this idea of, we all bring um, our our history and ourselves, our generational history, all of that, to every conversation. And so once you start seeing that, that reality mm-hmm. that we're all so complex, um, and they're all different from each other, but we're not all striving towards, you know, any one individual's right. norm or any one culture's norm, right? Um, yep. like what what does it mean to step away from assimilation towards any one particular human culture and rather assimilation towards God's reality and the, and the mm. idea of the kingdom and the place that's filled with love and grace and room for everybody? Yeah. And that's a big shift.
0: Mm. That's a it's a huge shift. We also mm. can't go into any conversation assuming that uh, people's definitions are the same. So whenever we, we mention something... Right. Um, you know, I have one definition um, and then, you know, you would have a different definition. But I, I, if I go in assuming that it's the same, we're going to miss each other. We're not going to be able to, to interact on a deep level and it's still going to be a surface level. Uh, what are some good ways that we could we can not assume um, and, <laughs> and maybe ask some questions and figure out what people mean?
1: Yeah, no, I I think absolutely. I think shared language is huge um, and always uh, being open to other people's interpretations of what something is and what something isn't. Um, And so I think asking the question, um, stating what you mean as clearly as possible. Um, If you're like in a structured conversation, then being able to say like, when I say power, I mean this, or when I say racism, I mean this, and I don't mean that. Um, and then just using, um, I, I would say also using language that's not, um, uh, I guess exclusive or, or extreme. And by that, I mean like, you know, absolute language, like well will never this or right. always that, you know, and it happens in little tiny things. <laughs> I remember when my, when my husband and I first got married, like he's using, um, a knife for something, and I was like, Oh, you can't use that knife for that, that's not a better knife. And he's like, It is a better knife, and I was like, No, a better knife is this, and he goes, No, this is a better knife, and it's just like the dumbest thing, right? The first year yeah. of marriage kind uh-huh. of debate it's just like, Oh, wait, like, just because my household called this particular knife a better knife and yeah. was called that one, doesn't change the knife, and you can use it for whatever you want to, <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. But you know, it turns into like a thing, and so I know that's like kind of a silly example. <laughs> but it just makes me think just as humans, we create these categories and we're so sure because that's all we've ever seen. Right. So why would it be something else? Um, and so you extrapolate from that silly (laughs) example to something much bigger and more serious where, you know, you're talking about race, for instance, which is very, um, heavy conversation. It's very personal. It's, it tends to get uh fraught quickly and um people get super anxious about it people get hurt really easily and to be able to lay out and say hey when i say racism i mean this and when i say race i mean that wow. other thing yeah um and so just being able to be open with it and then honestly be be really open also to admitting when you're wrong and being you know, open to apologizing and saying my intent was not that but i realized the impact it had on you was this and mm. i apologize
0: yeah, okay. um and then
1: you're able to to move on and, and i've apologized myself for um for things i've said that i've realized are insensitive um yeah. less around like race, but even around issues of like gender where right? i just didn't realize that something i said was offensive right. or just hurtful um mm-hmm. and to not try to justify it and fix it but to rather be like oh yeah that that was hurtful yeah. that was my impact i'm sorry yeah and then try to mend the relationship
0: yeah Uh, Where did you, uh, what was your journey like to get to City Hope, where you are now? Um, How did you get there? Uh, What did it look like? (laughs)
1: uh, the the meandering path of God, uh, never never quite straight. So, um, yeah, I studied something completely different in undergrad. Um, I was sure I was going to go into kind of more government work, international work. Mm -hmm. And, um, it just felt like the doors just kind of kept shutting when it came to like getting clearance for jobs or kind of getting, um, Mm. to, to an opportunity that felt right. And so I actually ended up working in refugee resettlement at a nonprofit in Atlanta. Um, and so starting to do a little bit of like faith work and my job there was really, um, helping churches understand what it, what, who is a refugee who are refugees? Yeah. Um, how can churches help? How can churches engage what things aren't helpful? Um, and in that process, I realized how much I enjoyed, um, working with faith communities and also um, helping to um, kind of just shepherd people through a process and helping them create those spaces of belonging and helping them and myself kind of broaden my view of like, who, who are our neighbors and and who do we welcome in and how do we do that? And what's this like myth of the deserving poor that a lot of people have like latched Mm. onto kind of Mm -hmm. unconsciously. And so kind of started unpacking all of that and ended up from there um, actually doing a pre seminary internship, a year long internship at a church there in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's kind of where I kind of got on the path of more um, like church leadership. And then it turned into like nonprofit leadership as well. So I did that for a year. And then I worked at a nonprofit in San Francisco doing kind of board management while I applied for seminary. Um, And then um yeah so then it ended up in seminary just not at all where I ever honestly (laughs) thought I was gonna end up um so but I did my MDiv and I I really enjoyed kind of understanding more uh about the why of Mm -hmm. my own faith of the, the why of moving into justice spaces of um articulating God's creation in a different way of making room for people Um, including room for myself, right? Like as a woman, as a woman of color, church has not always been the most welcoming space. And so, you know, what does it look like to be fully free and fully um, accepted as a child of God? Mm. Um, And that acceptance first starts with yourself and then realizing, um, I'd always known that I was accepted by God, but I had trouble with like the church piece of it. Mm. And so kind of starting to shape that and understand what that looked like. Um, anyway, so from there after after seminary, I ended up leading local outreach at a church in Washington, DC. Yeah. I did that for a few years. Um, and that was really like finding local nonprofit partners and sending volunteers, doing grants. Um, mm-hmm. and I really enjoyed that work again of saying, you know, how are we called to respond to the needs in our community? How do we walk alongside people? Um, in a way that's empowering and dignifying how do yep. we again make space in our community um, and then um, ended up moving to um, to the San Francisco Bay Area I live in Oakland as I mentioned at the beginning um, and I work in San Francisco Yeah. and uh, yeah so I I reached out to City Hope when I first moved here and I was just basically just out feelers and turned out they were hiring and they were looking to open a community center for our unhoused neighbors and mm. um, they needed to kind of help lead that up. Um, And uh, my co-director, Paul Trudeau, was already leading it. He had been there for a number of years and had really started the ministry. Um, And so I was able to come alongside and partner with him. And um, and it's just been quite a journey just uh, from opening the community center. We do events for, um, again, our unhoused neighbors or those who are uh, very low income or unstably housed. And it's it's meals but really it's relationship it's finding Mm -hmm. places or creating spaces for people to gather and connect with their neighbors we do bingo and games and karaoke and just let people um have a space where they can just literally put their stuff down put down some of their burdens and just Mm -hmm. enjoy themselves in a familiar trusting place um, for a couple hours every night um Mm -hmm. So, so, we do that. We host AA meetings. We do grocery deliveries to our our um, elderly, disabled neighbors in the in the neighborhood. Um, we also run a transitional sober living home. So, yeah, yeah it's it's a it's a wonderful organization, um, really impacting one specific neighborhood in San Francisco, and mm-hmm. we're in the northwest corner of an area called called the Tenderloin um, in San Francisco, which yeah. is really a hub of social service. And there's just Um, a lot of joy and gifts and a ton of poverty and drug use and homelessness Mm -hmm. in that one particular area. So um, we're just there to be a support uh, to our neighbors. And, um, and my role in particular is um, as the co-executive director is partly like just the finance operations. And then also our staff development, our um, equity work, kind of that creating of spaces for our internal team too, of how do we help each other, um, feel supported? How, how do we have an equitable, everything from like hiring practices yeah. to actual, um, space of belonging for people who work there too. So yeah, it's been great. And for partners and organizations that come through, um, there's a lot of pieces. We're a small organization, so we all have five paths. So asking yeah. on our team, like what do we do? And they're like, Let me tell you. (laughs) I know what
0: that's like. I know what that's like. My (laughs) wife and I always think, you know, as executive directors of a missions organization, we also always think of ourselves as utility players. It seems like we're always, you know, doing this or that and, you know, not just our own job, but everybody on our staff is like that. Right. We're we're all wearing different hats and we're just getting it done. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's good. One of the things you said you you wanted to impact one specific neighborhood, and one specific mm-hmm. place. What is the what's the ro- role of incarnation of really just being rooted in a place and not trying to go you know too broad?
1: Right. Yeah. I, I you know I think um, proximity and, and presence uh, would be the two words that that come to mind. And proximity, is something that I know Brian Stevenson. Um, who folks probably know um, yeah. who, you know, wrote Just Mercy and is a lawyer who's done a lot around um, incarceration and um, especially around African-Americans and death row and, and um, anti-lynching projects. Um, and even just bringing the history to, to, to bear. Just, you know, he talks about the importance of being proximate, of being close to people in order to build empathy and to understand where someone's coming from. So part yeah. of the incarnation is being close to people. I mean, when we think about Jesus and how many people, even with his um, disciples (laughs) who, who who tried to like, kind of create a little bit of a shield around him, like the number of people he let touch him and be really close to him in ways that, um, especially in that time were often seen as inappropriate, but the, the being close to people was a large part of his mission. He went from place to place he connected with people he had people who followed him but he was also um close to and and constantly seeking out those who society had put on the margins um and even those who the jewish people themselves had put on the margins Mm -hmm. for good reasons like the tax collectors and people who were also planning oppressive force Um, and yet he pulled people to himself um, with grace and truth Um, so I think for us, a lot of it is just being proximate, being close to people Mm -hmm. and, um, and people can tell when you don't want that, right. Like when you don't want to be near them, like when you skirt around them, whether you're disgusted or Mm. whether you're afraid or whatever the case may be, um, you know, people can sense that. Like we can all sense that when we feel unwanted. And so, that proximity is part of it. And then the presence piece I would say is a consistency of being in the same place over a period of years and for people to know like, oh, you're not going anywhere. Like I, I, one of the things I do as part of my role is actually we have a partnership with the San Francisco County Jail. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I've gone in for a number of years and met with um, the same woman and we've become close, but it was really about two years in, that she really opened up. And she, yeah. I, mean, I remember her saying like, oh, I just didn't know if you'd keep coming back. Yeah. And there's something about somebody knowing that you're there for the long haul and that you're not gonna disappear, that builds trust also. Yeah. Um, so I think that that's, uh, that's part of how we impact. Um, and I actually think that that presence um, it, as an organization, like n- obviously not all our staff are like frontline program people but as an organization sustaining a presence in that space requires a full team effort and um and i think it's really important that we've been consistent a known entity a a place of trust and support Mm. for a number of years there Um, and people come to you with more things once they once they trust you Mm. Um, and then you need to continue to earn that trust right not take it for granted um, but realize that it really is a, a relationship and not something to be um, um, something that does need to be treasured and, and maintained.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, in, in Kansas City, some of the things that I've seen, is, uh, especially of, of people trying to visit uh, refugees, uh, new immigrants into the city, um, a lot of times they're, they're there for a short time. With this family, um, they are forming relationship, but then leaving uh, because they may have some ulterior motive. They may just say, "Oh, they're not really open to Jesus. I don't want to keep visiting them." Um, but it actually does some damage to to the you know the refugee or the immigrant that's coming through in that family, where, wow, I thought you were here with me, but then they they leave. Um, they're not there. Um, how how did you see? I mean, even in your time in Atlanta, as you're you're bringing in churches and communities to do some refugee resettlement, um, how have you seen that done well? Um, and what are some of the processes that we need to implement so that we can show love, but just really just be love to the people that are coming that are brand new?
1: Yeah. Um, well, I think this goes back a little bit to what we were saying earlier about being being beloved and then also seeing everybody else as the beloved. Mm -hmm. So if your interest in interacting with somebody is, um, the usefulness and by that, I mean the, um, you know, I want to see many people I can save and I want to see if they're receptive. And if they're not going to help me get to like some numerical goal I have either implied or explicit, then they're not worth my time. Um, and that is a really hurtful and I would say even dangerous mindset um, because it, it really is so dehumanizing of saying this person's worth is only tied to this other external goal I have, as opposed to saying, you know, this person is made in the image of God mm-hmm. and uh, they are Worth is not something to be calculated or disputed. It just is, yeah. and it's not more or less than mine. And they don't need to do anything um, to deserve it. And it also assumes that um, we don't have something to learn about somebody else's faith journey yeah. um, and their own faith beliefs, which is also not um, not in the spirit of humility that I think as Christians we should hold. Um, so some of the things I've seen. Um, go well have been when people have been really humble, um, when people have been thoughtful about what they were engaging into and kind of managed their own expectations. Um, And so, you know, that looks like realizing that you're coming alongside a refugee family or an immigrant family, you're not adopting them. Um, They are, they have their own, um, histories they have their own skill sets they have their own goals and desires for their own lives they also uh you know presumably by virtue of their journey have traumas i mean we all have traumas but you know trauma specific to having to flee Mm -hmm. your home country and i'm assuming leaving family and friends for for most people um So, so there's just a lot that people are already caring and how do we come alongside in order to lighten that burden, to be a support in the way that they want to be supported as opposed to in the way that we want to support. Um, and you know, what it, what it makes me think of, um, you know, to, to just put it in, in some more familiar, uh, perspective is like when your child wants to help you cook and you're like, Oh, great can you wash the dishes as I do this? Like, can you help clean up after this? Or can you wipe down the counter? Oh no, I really just wanted to chop the carrot. And it's like, but I don't need you to do that because I can do that faster, but I need you to help them this <laughs> way. You're like, oh no, but that's, and then you realize like you don't want to help me. You have this task that you've already decided you want to do. And you just mm. want my permission to do that task. Mm. And I think <laughs> sometimes we approach helping the community in the same way. Like we've predetermined what we think would be most helpful and what yeah. we would enjoy the most. And that's really the only thing we're going to do. (laughs) And so that is actually not helpful. And it's really not service either, right? It's something you're doing for yourself. And so then you need to kind of sit back and ask yourself why. Why are you present there? What is it you're trying to do? And is it advancing God's kingdom? Is it advancing faith, hope, and love? Yeah. Or is it serving yourself in some way? Mm. Um, I've seen it go well when people um, put themselves in perspective of God's kingdom. And when they view the other person as truly fully human, fully made in the image of God, um, wow. an adult capable of making their own choices and see themselves as a partner as opposed to a parent. Um, and then I've seen it not go well when, when people kind of take it in the other direction and want to micromanage somebody's life and, and um, I've had churches say things to me like, like, oh, well, we gave them that money. And so we really think they should use it this way. Yeah. And it's just like, well, that's <laughs> not, that wasn't the agreement. The agreement was that, you know, you help them pay rent, not that you would tell them where to live. Yeah, Right. And so taking away um, a family's agency because you somehow think that they're not capable um, is... Uh, (laughs) not appropriate at best (laughs) Um, and and not helpful right because then the next person um, who remotely reminds somebody of that person whether it's because they come from a faith community or for some other reason comes along to help they're less likely to accept that assistance
0: yeah I you know I see agency is really really key you know as uh, my wife and I were in the Middle East for five years working with Syrian refugees and we were in people's homes, refugee homes, uh, all the time. One of the things I saw do well in the refugee camp that's near the city that we lived, 140,000 refugees in this camp, uh, but they they built grocery stores and give and just gave people coupons to go shop for themselves instead of Coming to the back of a truck and throwing rice at the family, it it helped provide some dignity in the midst of a traumatic and horrible, hard, difficult situation. Uh, It was just one small step. But I think, you know, as giving somebody agency just to go in and say, this is what I want to eat um, and this is what my family wants to eat and this is what I'm going to choose and I'm going to bring it home and be able to cook for my family. Um, It really helped um, really make the process of them entering back into a society uh, quicker um, because they they had a little bit of dignity at the beginning.
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely spot on. And I've seen some organizations start to make that shift, even with their Christmas stores in terms of, you know, not um, playing Santa and handing out gifts yeah. to children, but rather letting the parents have the dignity of shopping and surprising their own child. And then at City Hope, I mean, that dignity of choice is huge. So when I said we do meals, we actually have, um, we had to pivot a little bit during COVID, but we're starting to repivot back to, um, you know, our, our dining space is actually round tables and people come in and they actually get a menu. And they get to select, it's a limited menu, it's not like mm-hmm. five pages, but they get to select their salad mm. dressing and do you want cheese? And um, wow. you know, which of who entrees do you want? And the idea is like, no, we're not gonna feed as many people as possible that way because it's yeah. gonna slow people down. But if our goal is not number of meals served, but rather relationships built and dignity mm. affirmed, then that's one of the ways we do that by saying, you get to choose what you put in your body because just like me, I want that yeah. choice and I want to be able to make those decisions. I see you. I see that you also are equally um, entitled to that right, that choice yep. for your own self. And so here's a menu. And so, you know, That's it really beautiful. is a different model. Um, yeah. And yes, it's lower and some would say less efficient, but again, is usefulness and efficiency our goal or is acknowledging someone's belovedness, right? Mm. We come back to that
0: Yeah. So then how do you get to as an organization go from um, number goals to process goals like this is how we want to to interact and this is what we want to do. So eventually the whatever number will come. um, How do you get to do you have process goals instead of numerical goals? What does that look like?
1: Yeah, so um, our goals are a lot um, harder to, <laughs> to, to quantify sometimes because yeah. of that. And, and it is a, a, a mental shift and a cultural shift, right? Because, yep. you know, when it comes time to print out your annual report and people want to know how many meals you served and all yeah, these different exactly. things because those are the numbers they're used to seeing. Yep. So it's culture setting for our organization, but it's also um, a, a shifting of culture for our partners and our donors and, and really a process of discipleship is how we mm. see it. Um, and so, for us, part of how we do that, um, and there's some numbers involved, but we'll say things like when we train our volunteers or when we talk to our staff. Like everyone who comes in, by the time they leave, they should they should have heard somebody say their name three times. Mm. So you yeah. you say their name when you take their menu because they write their name at the top of the menu. You say your name their name when you hand them the food. You say you know by when they leave and you say their name. So bye, Tom. You know, and, and you, you name them and by doing that, you see them, you introduce yourself and we wear name tags. Um, and we, you know, we, we try to personalize it in that sense. Um, you know, we also talk about, um, how we address people and being thoughtful about using the pronouns that they ask us to use Mm -hmm. and, you know, uh, acknowledging people in their own identities. Uh, You know, we, we do coffee service where we're bringing the coffee out and we say, do you want sugar? Do you want milk? Oh, you actually want tea? Let me go see if I have any, (laughs) Um, you know, and, and it's all those things of saying it's not about how many cups did we serve, but did we serve Tom the cup he wanted in the way he wanted it. Um, so, you know, there's, there's things like that where, um, it's a, it's a process in that sense, just in our interaction with our guests, um, and even that calling them guests, they're guests within the city as opposed to clients. Um, so part of it is that, and then part of it is just internally with our staff. And it's just that setting that cultural expectation where, um, we always respect or always, (laughs) expect the highest respect, um, you know, towards our guests and towards each other. Mm. Um, and even the way we've written our employee handbook, um, puts the same kind of expectations and requirements on our volunteers and our donors. So just like we expect our staff to be super respectful and welcoming to our guests, if we see a volunteer or a donor, being acting in a way um and this doesn't really happen but if we see it you know we would also intercede there and say hey this is how we communicate with our guests and this is why again there's that process of discipleship um and so for us um when you ask kind of what processes we put in place it's really about culture setting and setting the expectation that this is a place where everyone is welcome respected and celebrated like those are our three things Mm. and if you're not doing that um, then you're not creating that safe space of belonging, which is who we are. Yeah. Um, and so we keep coming back to our values. And so, you know, um, we don't want to pe- keep people waiting all night for their meal or anything. It's not about going as slow as possible, <laughs> but also not rushing it so that, you know, they right. get the wrong order and then you're like, we'll just eat it. Like we would yeah. never do that. Um, that's because that's not who we are. And so our staff knows who we are, our volunteers know who we are, our clients know who we are. Yeah. And that being instead of doing is just really important to us.
0: Yeah. Being is so important. And I, have you know, the when <laughs> I, I've been working with others, especially, you know, in the Middle East, the 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 Syrians have a saying. They say Sarbena hubzamilla." after we've eaten together. It's basically just says between us, this happened bread and salt. And it means we're we're now friends. We can interact on a deeper level because we shared a meal. Um, and I think, you know, sharing meals, eating together will provide some depth of relationship that just a, a service uh, can't do. Um, and even, you know, as you are calling people guests and you're calling people by name, um, it is a slowing down and sharing together more than service to um, what's the, the interaction to, of that and what have you seen in any, any shared meals that you've had, uh, in your life with others and the experience that you've had in that?
1: Yeah, no, that's, um, yeah, that's a really good question. I, huh. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's just something, um, vulnerable maybe, I don't know. It's kind of, it sounds a little silly because like we all eat but yeah. maybe like that's the point right like we all need to eat and the fact that like one of the things we say at city hope is that we would never serve food that we wouldn't eat ourselves mm-hmm. um it's it's actually really good food like we have a great chef and he makes really good food and um we kind of all want to stay and eat because <laughs> it's really <laughs> good right and so it's this idea of you're our guest and we're giving you our best and I'm going to sit down and eat with you. Um, and um, and we know we don't always get the opportunity to do right. that, right? Like as staff, mm-hmm. you're like walking around and doing things. And I don't run programs. And so I'm not even there that often, uh, but yeah. our team is there. And um, and I know that they have, I'm thinking of some people in particular who have really um, taken the time to like build that relationship by being present, by listening, by being open by sharing a meal, by um, providing the, the best food possible. Um, and I know for myself, like some of my deepest interactions in terms of connecting with the actual community have been when I've, um, you know, shared a dessert, you know, cause usually that's the only time I end up like sitting down or being, or being like <laughs> close by, um, you know, but sharing dessert or if someone you know, ask for tea. Like I'm a tea drinker person. I don't drink coffee. So I'm like me too. (laughs) You know, And it's just like those little things like that. And then I think, um, also just like in our everyday lives, like whether you host a small group from your church, I know that has been, um, some of the most meaningful relationships I've had have been through, um, really connecting with people. And we always, like you said, start with a meal and we eat together and we share food and, you know, whether, um, people bring things or we know we cook and host there's something about um being together in person and um it just feels really intimate something about eating together feels like well one depending on what you're serving like you're sharing your culture you're sharing your preferences you're um yeah you're you're engaging in something that in most other times you're really only doing with your family, hmm. especially in our society where it's very yeah. like, um, smaller settings and fewer extended families living together and fewer community meals. And it really tends to be a really private thing.
0: Yeah, And even
1: when you do eat out, it's like you're private table. There's not very many places where you're eating communally. Um, yeah. And so there's, there's something I would say, I would say it's the intimacy. Yeah. I think that we demonstrate when we sit down together, um, and we stopped doing right. We, we stopped yeah. doing things and fixing things and offering advice, but rather we're, we're just sitting and partaking. And it's, it's such an equalizer. Um, and obviously like I, uh, in my mind, it also goes to the communion table, right. Where we're like mm-hmm. invited to this piece that we don't deserve, that we didn't help create yeah. that, um, we don't have a, um, a right to in some ways, and yet we're invited to and given Mm. that right of sorts by being called, you know, siblings of Christ and being allowed to come to this table and share together. And, and at my church, we always say, you know, it's, it's not the pastor's table. It's not the elder's table. It's not the particular church's table either. Like we're not going to tell you who can and cannot come because it's the Lord's table and he bites all. All of his creation to come forward. Yeah, um, and there's a beauty in that, and that that's repetition, and really that energy, yeah. that um, that mirroring within yeah. our daily lives.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. I my wife has a, a really good Kenyan friend who did her uh, yeah, did an MDF at uh, Fuller Theological Seminary, um, and sure, she was invited out to eat a lot. But never once was she invited home to somebody's house for a meal and uh, she was really hurt by that. Like so even in, you know, in our Western view, in our mindsets, taking somebody out to eat at a restaurant, a nice meal is showing hospitality and love. Um, But, you know, from from her Kenyan uh, worldview, from her culture, that actually doesn't go far enough. She wants to be in somebody's home, share a meal across a a family table uh, to be able to go a little bit deeper. So I think, you know, it's definitely very important that we we slow down and we eat together um, and invite people in and show hospitality in a way that uh, people want and not the way that we think people want. So, yeah, that's Mm -hmm. really good. Um, well, I w- I'm going to give you a really broad question, and then we're going to get to a couple uh of questions at the end. But this broad question is, what are some of the ways that we can establish the kingdom of God in a place or a community? How can we bring heaven to earth as we pray in the Lord's Prayer over again? It's a big broad <laughs> question. I know it's a yeah. big one. <laughs> but, Tell so. me more. Uh... <laughs>
1: Um yeah, um, I think that's a good question in part because I think so many people want to hear the answer to that, right? Like we want yeah. to know how to do that. We long for it. Mm-hmm. We long to feel the kingdom of God and the idea that we can participate in helping it come to fruition feels um, I think rightfully so, like an exciting um calling. Yeah. I think the the thing to be thoughtful and mindful of is, um, that we're not the only ones with that calling and that often, um, Jesus is already there. Mm, (laughs) And so, uh, what I would say is, um, that that first step is maybe to, um, pray for eyes to see and ears to hear and to Mm. walk into a space with a sense of, how is god already moving through here yeah um maybe the spirit called me here to be discipled um to watch for his creation to be in awe of something he's doing that i didn't even know he was doing in a neighborhood Mm. that i've never been to and to really remember especially as we're new in spaces um, and even with the Tenderloin, where you know I've been working there for seven years, but I don't live there. It's not my neighborhood, right. and so I don't walk into um, that space as though I own it or it's mine in some way. But rather, I remember that I'm a guest there in a much broader way than our communities right. our guests at the center. Um, and so, in what ways can I be mindful of the people around me? In what ways can I? listen and look and learn and see the movements of the spirit there and the ways that God can open my eyes to what is happening around. Um, and I can also speak my truth while I'm there. Right. And mm-hmm. be, um, be a friend, be a, uh, an encourager. Um, I think less so be a fixer uh, yeah. <laughs> and more just be a, uh, someone who comes in to, to just love, your neighbor. Um, and going back to what we said earlier is how, how do they need to be loved and how do they want to be loved? Um, it does mean, especially in um, certain lines of work, creating healthy boundaries. And mm-hmm. it doesn't mean like everything's a free for all, but it does mean um, having some spirit of humility, not going in with answers first, but really um, one of our values at City Hope is listening well. So how can we listen to um our community members and acknowledge that the spirit is speaking through them often. Um and and maybe we just need to tune our ears in in different ways. So um I think that would be something that I would encourage people to do is just walk in with a spirit of um humility with a teachable heart and um and yeah that prayer, eyes to see and ears to hear Mm. is um can be just really powerful to see things that maybe we we didn't even know to look for,
0: yeah, to go in with the heart of a learner to discover what is there this is a beautiful posture to have i think in in every sphere that we walk in um uh, as uh what does it look like as a as a your family to be able to do this uh engage the community together as a family
1: yeah um You know, I think that different families will do it in different ways. I think there's uh, certainly people who volunteer with their children who want to expose their children to, um, yeah, to, to circumstances that they might not ordinarily walk Mm by. Um, and so I think there is a value to that. Um, I think as long as we always do it thoughtfully so that it's not, um, uh, instilling like a savior complex or a savior mentality within our children from a young age, but we're rather saying, you know, we're here to walk alongside and children are great at asking really to the point questions. Um, you know, like we went camping this past weekend and my eight-year-old was like, So like, are there three gods just kind of like out of nowhere? Mm -hmm. She's like, there's the Father, there's the Son, there's the Holy Spirit. And like, everybody's trying to figure out the Trinity, right? (laughs)
0: Exactly. But then you have
1: an (laughs) eight-year-old asking you that, like around the campfire. And you're like, well, let me tell you. (laughs) Um, You know, so children will get to the heart of the matter and they will ask the deep questions and they will ask why somebody's sleeping on the side of the road and why someone Mm -hmm. is sleeping in the tent. In the city, um, they'll ask why this person doesn't have food, and I think that's really an opportunity to um, to share with them again both the, the the specifics of you know this person doesn't have food because yeah. you know well <laughs> let me stop right there we should be careful not to make something up right you don't uh, want to assume <laughs> describe a story yep. to somebody uh-huh. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I was like wait a second before we start uh, down that road. Um, you know, so, so don't make up a story, but you can talk about stomach issues, right? Yep. Like, well, some people have experienced addiction. Some people, um, you know, ended up in foster care and, uh, they have a higher, well, it, obviously this is not how you explain it to an eight-year-old, but you know, like there's <laughs> different pieces that you yeah. could bring together. Um, but to help develop like a posture of, learning and listening and that it's okay to ask questions, but it's also really important to um, show respect, right? So this person, even though you can tell is in a worse financial situation than you are, or worse physical health situation than you are, they're no less worthy of respect than an adult that you might run into at church or run into at the grocery store, right? And so you still um, don't call them by their first name or yeah. whatever your family rules are around that. Um, you know, you still are super respectful and then you can come ask me the question and I will help you figure that out. And I'm learning too. Right. So yeah. kind of that posture of learning, I think is one way that we do it with our families. Um, and then I think it's again, different for every family, right? Like if your family has a history of poverty themselves um. Your instinct might actually be not to bring your children into those spaces right. because you've seen it and you've experienced it, and you're actually working to not have that trauma inflicted on your child. Right. And so I think there's room for, um, you know, parental discretion around what that looks like and what those conversations, yeah, are. You know, and so for a family who's faced poverty, or for a family who understands the um the racial dynamics of poverty in this country where like wealth has been systemically allotted and encouraged and um cultivated within the dominant culture the the white Mm. um, population in america and there is disproportionate impact of poverty on folks of color you know it could be really traumatizing for a child of color to go serve at a place yeah. Where they can see that, you know, like in San Francisco, like our Black population is only down to 4% for mm. a variety of reasons. Um, and yet the population of folks of color on the streets is in the 30%. Wow. Um, and the percentage is in the 30s. Um, so that disproportion can also be extremely disheartening and requires a whole extra level of conversation. Um, especially for parents of color. So I would say that, you know, do what feels right to you. Have the conversations that feel appropriate um, and feel um, like they will encourage and disciple and Mm -hmm. challenge your child in the ways that are appropriate to your own family situation. I don't think there's one right way to do that.
0: That's good. That's really good. You know, Sally, I I could talk to you all day. There's all sorts of questions that I have going through my mind, but we're running out of time. So there's a couple of questions I'd like to ask at the end. One is, if you could give advice to your 21-year-old self, what would you go back and say to your 21-year-old self?
1: Oh, uh, that's a quick question.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's not quick, um, but it is a couple. <laughs> um,
1: I, you know, I think just tr- trust the process that life is not linear and there'll be surprises and mm you know, when things get hard, just kind of keep pushing through and really um, be gracious to yourself. I think one of the best um, things I've learned over the years is that I can say to myself, you're doing the best you can. Yeah. And be okay with that. I think I was a lot harder on myself Mm -hmm. as a 21 year old. And the anxiety can really creep up if you feel like, Perfection is the the goal and the expectation, and so yep. to just be gracious with yourself, to trust that God has a plan. Like I didn't think I'd end up living in the Bay Area, you know, an ordained minister working at a nonprofit. Like, right. like none of those three things were on my list, <laughs> yeah. and yet, you know, here we are, and it's it's a gift. It's been a struggle, mm. and it's a huge gift.
0: Mm. That's good. Uh, anything that you've been reading or watching that you could recommend?
1: Oh, um, what have I been reading? Um, so let's see. Um, probably a couple of months ago, I read Cast uh, by Isabel Wilkerson. I thought mm. that book was phenomenal.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, you know, it talks about the caste system in America specifically, and it compares uh, Germany, America, and um, India um, in terms of their caste systems and their histories around race. And I just, um, I still think back oh. on it. I found it fascinating. Yeah. Um, there's, let's see. Um, I try to alternate fiction and nonfiction.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and so I'm reading a, a nonfiction book now called, um, Deacon King Kong, which oh, is actually yeah. like a, a murder nonfiction. Um, I wouldn't call it a murder mystery, but, uh, it takes place in the sixties. Um, And it's just really, I don't know, a fun read and it's interesting. Um, I have been kind of shifting to read more um, authors of color in particular. I think Mm -hmm. I hadn't realized, again, as a person of color, uh, just the normalization of um, uh, kind of, uh, even within my my fiction reading, just like the the white voice and the white perspective. And so Mm -hmm. I've really tried to broaden out um, my reading. And it's actually um, been so much less taxing to not encounter microaggressions in my casual reading. Hmm. And so that's, wow. that's been um, yeah. a learning curve for me during yeah. COVID where I've really shifted my bookshelf intentionally. Yeah. Um, and so I would encourage people to try out some of these books and, um, you know, look at uh, those lists on Amazon or on independent booksellers. I found yeah. a um, African American bookstore here in Oakland, and um, I haven't been able to physically go there, but I found them online. <laughs> um, you know, and just looking through their book recommendations and and trying out new authors and new genres has been um, really powerful for me personally.
0: Yeah, that's great. Well. Um just to know I did enjoy Deacon King Kong as well I really
1: oh yeah uh, I loved it It'll tell so me the end I'm not
0: quite done yet I, I won't tell you the end uh, it's a good one okay yeah. it's really good <laughs> well Sally thank you so much for being on I really appreciate it I love the conversation Uh and we could uh, go deeper and deeper maybe we can just have another conversation ar- around a campfire sometime that would be nice would be fun <laughs> <laughs> all right thanks Sally
1: thanks